Well, about eight weeks ago, we began a journey through the letter of James in the New Testament. And we titled the series, Be Like Your Brother, because we believe that the letter of James was written by none other than the brother of Jesus, James. And we said, you know, don't you realize what it must have been like to grow up with Jesus as your brother? And people coming up saying, I wish you were more like your brother And while Jesus and James might have been different, Scripture says that James and some of his family members often thought that Jesus was out of his mind. It does appear that after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, that uh, James began to understand more clearly uh, what his brother was about and what he'd come to do. And and James' letter reflects that indeed, as he got older, Uh, he became more like his brother, uh, Jesus. And so we're finishing up that series today. We're in the fifth chapter, the final chapter of James's letter uh, with the verses 13 through 20. And the theme of today's passage is prayer. It is prayer. Now, I don't know how you feel about prayer, but I think that prayer is probably the most necessary and yet quite possibly the most neglected part of the Christian walk. I mean, we pray faithfully when things are going bad, when there's something that we really want or feel like that we really need. But I don't know about you, but when things are going rather well, sometimes I find that my prayer life is not quite as faithful, that I don't spend as much time giving God thanks for all of the goodness in life. And so I think it's important that James chooses to Um, to talk about prayer as he ends his letter. Now, it's also interesting to me that if you look back into the Gospels, there's only one incident where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. Uh, He never said, hey Jesus, teach us how to preach. He never said, hey Jesus, teach us how to heal or to exorcise demons. But the disciples did say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responded to that request by teaching them what we now know and pray as the Lord's prayer. It's as if when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, they knew the vital link that existed between Jesus's life of prayer and the power that was made known in his life and ministry and they wanted to tap into that same kind of power now you see evidence of this prayer being important throughout the early church and even throughout our world today Uh, I'm reminded of Pentecost, that Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down like fire and wind as if it was a dove and it anointed on the early church, the early believers there. And in Acts chapter 2, it says that the result of that anointing of the Holy Spirit is that those people began to commit themselves to several things, one of which was to a faithful life of prayer. And there's also the uh, indication that they thought it was vitally important to ministry. Now, um, 
George Barna has been around since I've been in ministry and, and in all likelihood a lot longer, but a, a colleague of mine was telling me that there was a research lately where George Barna, who studies spirituality and religion and culture and in churches, and so the George Barna Institute decided to ask people like us, people of faith, what do you think are the top three things that would deepen a person's spiritual walk and life? And you probably wouldn't be surprised by what the three most commonly held beliefs are. Uh, the top three things were you ought to be in worship, uh, you ought to study your Bible, and you ought to pray. If you want a deepening spiritual life and walk, you ought to worship, you ought to study God's Word, and you ought to pray. And my friend went on to say, you know, the reverse is also true. If you want a shallow faith, have I got some steps for you. If you'd like to have a shallow faith and never get deeper in your faith at all, hey, never come to worship. Just stop coming. And, and stop reading the Bible, too. Just completely stop reading Scripture if you want a shallow, shallow faith. And one more, never pray. Just stop praying. Just, just completely give it up. Because the reality is, is that in the same way that those three things can enhance and deepen a person's spiritual walk, the absence of those three things can certainly hamper a person's spiritual walk. And perhaps that's why James decides as his letter comes to a close that he wants to stress the importance of prayer. And so he wants us to know when should you pray? Well, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful or you're happy, pray. Well, actually, that's not entirely what he said. He said, if you're cheerful or you're happy, you should sing songs of prayer. Uh, there's all sorts of evidence in Scripture that we're supposed to be singing people. And we who are believers are supposed to be singers. I looked up in 1 Corinthians 14. It says that singing is integral when people come together. And that when you come together, you ought to sing. Ephesians chapter 5 says that when you come together, you shouldn't be drunk with wine but you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you should sing songs and you should sing psalms and you should sing hymns. And in Colossians chapter 3, it says that with gratitude in our hearts, we should sing. But I digress. This is really not a sermon about singing. It's a sermon about praying. I'll leave that to Reverend Mary to reinforce the singing part. But James is talking about the importance of praying in all seasons. In the highs and the lows, in the joys and in the pains of life. And James says that we should pray first, my favorite kind of prayer, intercessory prayer intercessory prayer. He talks about how that if you are sick, you should allow the elders or the leaders of the church the opportunity to pray for you. Now, in the first century, when you were sick, 
chances are that before you went to some sort of a doctor, you would first go to the priest or to the rabbi. And when you would go to the priest or the rabbi with your sickness, one of the things that they would do is that they would anoint you with oil. And that's because in the first century, and in fact even today, people believe that there is medicinal power or value in being anointed with this oil. But I would suggest to you that when they came to the priest or the rabbi with sickness and were anointed with oil, that they didn't believe that the oil alone alone had power or value. But that what they really held on to was the hope and the belief that when that priest or rabbi anointed you with that oil and touched you, that there was healing power in that touch. And when the priest or the rabbi anointed you with that oil and touched you, the priest or the rabbi would also pray over you and for you. And they believed that in those prayers that there was healing value. Now in the first century when you were sick like that, a lot of times you ended up being quarantined. A lot of times you ended up being uh, cast aside, put away from everyone else as a way to protect the healthy people in the community from being affected by the sick people in the community. And so James here, when he's telling those people, when you're sick, you go to your church leaders and you ask them to pray over you and they will anoint your head with oil. It's a way of including them. It's a way of saying you're not going to be cast aside or ostracized, that you belong in the community of faith when you are sick. It reminds me of Luke's gospel when the four uh, friends decide they're going to bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. He's teaching in this home and so they're going to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus and they get to the home and they can't even get through the front door because there's so many people around. And, and so they've got this man and they believe that if, if they could just get him before Jesus, that somehow Jesus could heal this man and, and forgive this man. And so when they can't get through the front door, they, 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 they go up to the roof and they somehow make a hole in the roof and they lower this paralyzed man down so that he goes to the feet of Jesus as he's teaching. And according to Luke's gospel, Jesus saw their faith, presumably the faith of the four friends who brought this paralyzed man to Jesus. And he said to the man, your sins are forgiven and you've been healed. There's absolutely no evidence that that paralyzed man believed that he could be healed or that Jesus could do it. But scripture says that when Jesus saw the faith of his four friends, that he healed this man. That's the power of intercessory prayer. When you and I are willing to take others and to place them at the feet of Christ. The great physician. That there's something powerful and healing and whole making in that act. It also reminds me of Acts chapter 12. 
this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Uh, they're having their first prayer meeting. Um, and they're praying about Peter. Peter's been thrown into jail because of his faith. Uh, it's not looking good for him. The Sanhedrin has been uh, giving him a tough time. And so these people gather together in Mary's home. And this is Mary, the, the mother of John Mark. And they're sitting there praying for Peter when all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and a servant girl goes downstairs and opens up the door. And guess who's there? It's Peter. He's been released from prison. They prayed on Peter's behalf to be liberated from jail. And he was. Now I'd like to suggest to you that every time you and I pray for another person with specificity. That God just answers that prayer exactly the way we prayed it. But that's not the way it works, is it? Because sometimes the things that we pray for and the things that we ask God for. That, that's not really what prayer is all about prayer is not about getting God to do whatever we want God to do prayer could probably more accurately be described is aligning our lives and our wills with the will of God and that's why when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray and when Jesus told them how to pray included in that prayer is that we should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But there is great power in this intercessory prayer. And James wants us to be reminded of that. To constantly be praying for others. And then the second thing that James points out about prayer. Another form of prayer. Is he talks about prayers of confession. Prayers of confession. Have you ever stopped to think about how much emotional and spiritual damage. That our sinfulness and our brokenness causes in our lives and in the lives of those we know and love, not to mention in the larger world. And James is talking about the importance of us praying prayers of confession when the things that we've done, when our brokenness and our sinfulness has driven a wedge between us and God and us and the world. Here's the reality, though. Uh, many of us, if not most of us, don't really like prayers of confession. We like the prayers where we invite God to do something. We like the prayers for God to show up and show out in our lives. But we would rather, when it comes to our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, we would rather try to rationalize that or to justify that or to even deny it or even repress it instead of confess it. And what James is saying to us is that we need to be people who are willing to admit our sin and admit our brokenness. On Friday mornings, I meet with a group of guys. Uh, they're from different denominations. Some are clergy, some are lay. And, and every Friday morning, we begin by essentially asking the same question. And it's a question that our 
father in the faith, John Wesley, used to ask in the early Methodist movement. And the question is, how is it with your soul? And we ask that question because we want people to do an examination of our lives. And, and how are, in the ways have we given glory and praise to Christ and we, and we uh, lived in such a way that our faith was, was made known and visible and powerful but also to give um, time to think about the ways that we've failed to be the people that God would have us to be. It's an opportunity for us weekly to confess our sins to each other and to confess our sins to God. Now I find it easier, I don't know about you, to confess to God than I confess than confessing to other people. Because when I'm confessing it to God, it's just me and God and none of y'all are hearing it. And none of y'all can hold me accountable if you've never heard me say it. And none of y'all can hold my feet to the fire with it when I transgress and I don't do what I say that I really want to do and I'm banking on God being heavy on grace and so you know if I say something to God about it and then I don't do it you know I'm just going to plead for the mercy of Jesus but it is tough to confess sin to another human being because in naming that sin and the way we've fallen short of the glory of God we're also inviting accountability with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet James seems to know that sometimes our sinfulness creates a barrier between us and God. And it's us and God alone. But oftentimes sinfulness not only creates a barrier between us and God. But our brokenness and our sinfulness ends up creating a barrier between us and other people. And so if you want to break those barriers down, you can't just pray for one of them to be removed. You can't just pray to God and say, God, I confess the sin that is between me and you. But you must also confess the sin that is between you and the other people in your lives. And so that's what James is saying here. James wants us to make both of those kinds of confession. Now, uh, Many of you are a part of 12-step recovery groups. And I'm a big, big fan of 12-step recovery groups. My life has been immeasurably enriched by um, those groups and, and what I, in ways I've grown as a result of those groups. In most of those recovery groups, the eighth step is that you are willing to make a list of all the people that you have wronged and are willing to go and make amends to those people. And then step nine in those groups is going and making direct amends with anyone that you've harmed, except when to do so would injure them or someone else. Twelve-step recovery groups realize that it is so important to be completely transparent. And to acknowledge when the way we live has negatively impacted the lives of those around us. And we should be willing to confess that and go to them and seek restoration and reconciliation. Well, James then goes on to reference Elijah. 
It's kind of a weird inclusion for me. He says that Elijah is a human being just like the rest of us. I guess what he means is that Elijah, like the rest of us, is imperfect and inconsistent and flawed and broken and sinful. But he's also forgiven and he's also gifted and graced in in amazing ways. And so Elijah, this uh, man, goes and he prays for God. And apparently it appears as if the prayers that he's praying are in alignment with God's purposes and God's will. Because he prays that a drought will begin and then later he prays for a drought to end. And the reason why he's praying for this drought to begin and end is because he wants the rulers of Israel to uh, repent and to turn back to God. And this human being, this flawed human being just like us. Prays this prayer that's in alignment with the will of God and God hears Elijah's prayer and answers God's prayer. Finally, the last thing that James talks about in this passage today, and I think it might be my favorite thing that James mentions in the passage today, is James suggests that after we have prayed prayed intercessory prayers on behalf of other people, and after we've prayed confessional prayers, To seek to eliminate the gap that exists between us and God and us and other people because of our sin. James suggests that prayer leads to action. And he says that if there are people that are wandering away from the faith, wandering away from the truth, that after we have prayed for them, that it is our responsibility to go into action and to go and try to restore those people to the community of faith, to the truth. So prayer is not just these words that we say to one another or to God or that we say in church or that we pray silently to ourselves, but those prayers are actually to spur us into action. Now I do feel like I need to point out that James here is not talking about us going out to the non-believers, the unbelievers and trying to win them into salvation, into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not what James is saying here. What James is saying here is that sometimes people wander away from the faith. They're already believers. And they wander away from the faith. And they wander away from the truth. And James wants us praying on their behalf. And when they wandered away because of something that we said or we did or we didn't say or we didn't do. Or something that the church did or something that the church didn't do. James wants us to confess that. But then James wants us to go seeking those that have wandered away to restore them to the community of faith. I wanted to end by sharing this with you. It's about our church. And maybe this will be helpful in trying to discern what is it that God is calling us to do with this passage of scripture that we've heard read and spoken about this morning. Um, The United Methodist Church loves to collect data, information, 
numbers. And so when I found out that I was going to be your pastor, one of the things that I did is I went and I pulled all the numbers from St. Mark's United Methodist Church for the last 10 years. One of the statistics that jumped off the page for me about St. Mark's United Methodist Church was that at the end of 2015, the reported average attendance on Sunday morning for St. Mark's United Methodist Church was 550 people. Now that's preacher math, so it could be a little high. At the end of 2017, the average reported attendance at St. Mark's United Methodist Church was down to 417. Now I went to Ole Miss. I can't add that well, but I think it's 130 people some odd. So 130 people in two years' time are no longer coming to this church. Some of those can be explained by death. Some of those can be explained by people who've moved away or moved to another church. But not all of them. I wonder if you're sitting here today, is there a name of a person or a family that comes to mind that you used to see sitting on your pew every single Sunday? And they're not here anymore. And they haven't been here in a long, long time. And I wonder if this might be the invitation for all of us today. To take a page out of James's letter. And to say, you know what? I'm going to begin praying for those names. Those individuals and those families that have come to mind in this moment. That I haven't seen at church in a long, long time. I'm just going to pray prayers of intercession for them. And I wonder, might there need also to be a prayer of confession? Is there something that we said or didn't say, that we did or we didn't do, that played a part in them wandering away from this community of faith? Is it something that the church did or didn't do or said or didn't say? Do we need to confess and pray a prayer of confession in the way that James advises? And if these folks have wandered away, could not the invitation be for us today to do as James suggests at the end of the passage. And that God, if God so willed, would be willing to use us to restore those who've wandered back to the church here. Now what I want to say as I end is that if God has brought people to mind and, and you begin to intercede on their behalf and, and, and even if you feel the need to confess something to them um, 
if they're already going to another church and God's doing great things in that church and God's doing great things in them because of the faithfulness of that new church, I'm not asking you to go and try to steal the sheep back into here. I'm not. Give thanks to Almighty God that they have gone on and found another church home where they're being blessed immeasurably where Sunday after Sunday after Sunday they're encountering the good news of God's great love. But I suspect that there are a lot of those who have wandered who aren't going anywhere. And that's why we need to be interceding. And that's why we might need to be confessing. And maybe, just maybe, in interceding and confessing, God would see fit to use us to help restore some who've wandered away and they could come back home.